0: Globally, there are gross inequities in access to COVID-19 vaccines. High-income countries have secured a majority of the world's vaccine supply, and many low-income countries have barely begun the immunization process. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Suri Moon, co-director of the Global Health Center at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Dr. Moon has co-authored a perspective article about global vaccine access. Dr. Moon, could you start by explaining the current state of vaccination efforts in various parts of the world? Where is there plenty of vaccine and where is there not enough?
1: Indeed, I think the situation that we see today can be very quickly summed up with the phrase vaccine apartheid, where you see an excess or a surplus supply of vaccines in a number of high-income countries and a severe, severe shortage, particularly in the poorest countries in the world and kind of a middle situation, I would say, in a number of the upper and middle-income countries. I think we've seen a number of the wealthier countries begin to be able to restart social and economic and cultural life. And we've seen the beneficial effects of widespread vaccination really being seen with declining case numbers in many countries, and let's hope that this holds. In the meantime, we're seeing third, fourth waves, increasing pressure on health systems in a number of countries, particularly today in Latin America and in sub-Saharan Africa, although of course, every month this pandemic is continuing to evolve, so this might be another region a few weeks from now.
0: So how did we end up with this level of inequity? Are there alternative paths that countries could have taken early in the vaccine development process to ensure more equitable access?
1: Absolutely, I think what we saw happen over the last 18 months or so is, in fact, a repeat of history, a repeat of what happened in 2009 during the H1N1 influenza pandemic And basically what happens is that all countries scramble for access to vaccines in a pandemic and the most powerful countries, the ones who have paid for research and development, the ones who have manufacturing capacity on their soil, the ones who have enough money to kind of get to the front of the line, are the ones who manage to get the most. So this is perhaps not a terrible surprise. There were efforts to try to prevent history from repeating itself, but uh, unfortunately those efforts Were ultimately unsuccessful as we've seen. So we had a number of wealthy countries who really did their best to secure as much as they could, but what this meant was there was very little vaccine left for the rest of the world. And appealing to ethical obligations or political decision makers to do the right thing and to share vaccine stocks simply has not been adequate. So I think what we need to do is really take a hard look at what has happened, and to put in place some significant changes today so that we don't see this kind of inequity arising again in the future. And I think there's at least two areas where we should really be focusing. One is looking at indeed the research and development process. How do governments invest and pay for R&D vaccines and what can be done differently in the way that vaccines are developed? And the second is what legally binding commitments are governments going to be willing to make in order to try to have more reliable rules for governing access to vaccines in the future.
0: So would those sorts of tenets be part of the pandemic treaty that you talk about in your article? What would that kind of agreement look like?
1: There has been increasing momentum, I would say, and attention to the idea of a pandemic treaty and the increasing recognition that it's important to have binding international laws to better prepare the world in general for pandemics. And one of the most important issues has been, of course, trying to ensure access to vaccines and other health technologies like medicines and drugs diagnostics and personal protective equipment. And so within the broader context of this discussion on a pandemic treaty, there has been increased interest in what actually would work to prevent this kind of uneven distribution of vaccines. And what we've learned from previous efforts and debates in this area is that you really do have to look upstream. You really do have to intervene upstage during the R&D process. And there's been important progress. And that important progress in the last few years is that governments have made steps towards working together to cooperate, to invest in vaccine R&D through the creation of an organization called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI. And governments have agreed to invest jointly in vaccine research and development and to tie conditions to that money so that the vaccines that ultimately come out of the pipeline are priced in an affordable way and made available to all countries, not just the most powerful countries. And one interesting thing to watch during the COVID-19 pandemic has been how well has SEPI worked? How well has this worked? And SEPI has been, I think, quite a major player. So we've certainly had proof of principle, I would say, during this pandemic. SEPI is now the third largest public investor in vaccine R&D behind the United States and the government of Germany. They have a quite wide portfolio of vaccine candidates. And at least some of the companies that have been funded by CEPI have made quite wide-ranging commitments to supply at affordable prices to developing countries. And the two that may be best known are AstraZeneca and Novavax. And these companies have agreed to supply much larger volume and proportion of their vaccines to developing countries than companies that have not taken grants from CEPI, such as, for example, Moderna and Pfizer. And what this experience suggests is that when governments are willing to pay for vaccine R&D upfront and do so with the clear intention of making vaccines globally available, it is possible to do that. And I think this is a very, very important proof of principle because prior to the creation of CEPI, which was not long ago, just in 2017, prior to the creation of CEPI, this really had not been demonstrated before that it was possible to do this. Now, in my personal view it's not as if everything went perfectly during this pandemic. Certainly, I think we do need to have much more in-depth evaluation of what went wrong and how can we improve on both what CEPI has done as well as a number of other governments. But I do think this is a very important demonstration that much more collaborative and proactive investment by governments is possible to make vaccines more widely accessible in the next pandemic.
0: So one of the upstream issues is clearly intellectual property protections, and you argue that they should not be allowed to pose legal barriers to manufacturing around the world. Things like patents shouldn't be a legal obstacle. So what's the current situation there? And do you think that these kinds of protections will be lifted at any point?
1: There's indeed a very, very robust debate on this currently happening just down the street from my office at the World Trade Organization where a proposal is on the table to suspend intellectual property protections on COVID-19 health technologies, including but not limited to vaccines. And there are about 100 countries that have supported this waiver, including the United States, which has supported a limited version of the waiver. And this has led to a lot of discussion and debate on what would this mean? And I think it's important that we keep in mind, you know, what is the function of intellectual property protection in the first place? The main objective is that it provides an incentive for invention by de-risking investments that private players will make in research and development. And perhaps in normal times, this is the way the system works. But in a pandemic, and certainly in COVID-19, the situation has been quite different, where you have massive public investment upfront at risk in research and development, about $6 billion, according to our estimates. You have massive de-risking by the public sector of manufacturing and purchasing of vaccines, at least $45 billion in purchases by governments, according to our estimates. And so what this means is that the risk and the costs of R&D have been already taken on by society at large. And that's as it should be. I think that makes perfect sense in a pandemic where... You don't want to wait for businesses to have enough certainties to be willing to invest in what will be a highly risky market. You do want governments to move quickly and definitively. And this is indeed exactly what we saw happen. But what this also means is that you don't need to provide intellectual property protections to ensure that the invention happens. And in fact, IP can backfire because intellectual property monopolies can limit follow on innovation, they can actually prevent other players from developing the next generation of vaccines, perhaps better adapted vaccines for some of the new variants that are coming down the line, vaccines that might require less refrigeration that could be easier to use, for example, especially in resource-poor settings. So there's definitely a downside for innovation to intellectual property in a pandemic. But the other downside that you mentioned earlier is, of course, the limits on manufacturing. And what we do see today is that the world simply does not have enough vaccines we don't have enough to go around. And so what is quite frustrating is that there is unused manufacturing capacity. There are a number of governments and private producers who have come forward and said, we can produce COVID-19 vaccines as long as we have the technology and as long as we don't face legal barriers and the threat of lawsuits for potentially infringing on different forms of IP. And this is really where the waiver on IP protections comes into play. It's a way of trying to provide that legal certainty to companies so that they can begin scaling up production as quickly as possible.
0: So finally, you've talked about the importance of building the scientific and industrial capacity to produce vaccines in all parts of the world. If we get past the IP obstacle, what further steps do you think would be needed to move toward that goal?
1: I think some of the decisions that we make today will definitely reverberate for years to come. So if we can get a big political and economic push behind expanding vaccine production capacity to different regions of the world, this can certainly pay off in the future in terms of improved preparedness. But I think we also need to put in place the commitments to fund research and development and the commitments to openly license and to make available all of the knowledge that comes from those investments in research and development, to make that knowledge as available as quickly and as openly as possible. And this is where we come back to the importance of international rules and the importance of a treaty to try to prevent vaccine apartheid in the future. Because at the end of the day, I think any kind of arrangement we put in place has to be credible. It has to serve the self-interest of all countries, and it can't just rely on good intentions or on charity or on development aid as a discretionary activity of rich countries. We've seen in this pandemic that none of these motivations is strong enough to guarantee vaccine access. And so what we need is a much stronger set of arrangements. And I do believe that if governments would agree both to jointly invest in research and development of countermeasures such as vaccines in the future, To jointly invest at risk and at scale, and to tie conditions to those investments so that all of the knowledge, the data, the patents, the know how, the technology, all of that would be made openly available so that any country in the world could produce vaccines and other products that would result. That these kinds of binding legal commitments are what we need in a treaty to set the groundwork for the future. And this will also support the long term capacity of different regions of the world to manufacture vaccines for themselves soon to develop vaccines for themselves. And ultimately, the more we can mobilize both industrial capacity, but also scientific knowledge and scientific capacity from around the world, the better off we all are in combating whatever the next pandemic will look like.
0: Thank you, Dr. Moon.